Read and hear more about important news and policy issues at ncpolicywatch.com. This is News and Views. Welcome to News and Views. I'm your host, Rob Schofield. It's September, the third month of the state fiscal year, but the North Carolina General Assembly remains in session and not even close to sending a proposed budget over to Governor Roy Cooper. Indeed, at this point, it looks increasingly likely that our supposedly part-time legislature will stay in session right on into the fall holidays. Despite its extended stay in Raleigh, however, the legislature's accomplishments remain scarce. Indeed, Republican legislative leaders seem largely disinterested in addressing many of the massive and unprecedented challenges, the pandemic, lack of access to health care, the massive needs in public education that face our state. Earlier this week, I got an update on this frustrating state of affairs in an extended conversation with veteran state representative Greg Meyer of Orange County. In part one of our chat, Meyer made clear that the inaction at the legislative building is doing great damage to our state. Representative Greg Meyer, welcome back to News and Views. Good to have you back with us. Hey, Rob, I wish that we weren't still here talking about legislative session because we should be done, but I'm glad to be here with you. Well, I appreciate that. Indeed, that was going to be the first question I was going to ask you. Here we are into September now. It just seems y'all have been pretty much in session since January. I know it's not your choice, but I wonder if you have any thoughts on how long this uh, might still go on. You know, this, the state of North Carolina's annual budget kicked into gear on July 1, and now here we are in the beginning of September. And people might wonder, well, how does that even work? Well, it's because we have a provision that basically keeps the budget going at the previous year's level, except now we're going back three years because we didn't have a budget from the last time around either. And my Republican colleagues like to talk about how government should run like a business or you wouldn't do, you wouldn't treat your personal finances like this. And this is just the most complete failure of living up to their own ideals because they can't blame Governor Cooper or the Democrats for this. We don't have a budget because the House and Senate Republicans can't agree upon what they want to have in the budget. And so the people of North Carolina are waiting. You know, we've talked a lot about the fact that there really hasn't been much willingness to negotiate with the state's governor, whom people have now elected twice to be their governor. But at this point, we're not even to that stage yet. Here it is, it's September, and we literally haven't even sent one over for the governor to examine at this point. It's pretty remarkable. And what we have seen from the Republicans is just so far away from where the governor's priorities are that maybe that's why they're not in a rush to get to that point. You know, the Governor Cooper has proposed ambitious investments in education to meet the constitutional mandate in the Leander case. He has a budget that has strong investments in climate change measures throughout many sections of the budget, not just in environmental quality. And it's a budget that's all around better for working people. You know, if we get to a place where the Republicans are negotiating with the governor in any serious way, and we have a public discussion of what they've proposed versus what he's proposed, people are going to recognize that the governor's proposals are better for your back pocket and better for the long-term health, literal health coming out of the pandemic, and environmental health and our long-term sustainability, it's going to be clear that people elected the right governor. So much has changed in our state, of course, since we last passed a budget in 2018. Although we, you're right, there's a budget that sort of just stays in place. There's obviously a whole host of issues that you know, weren't even on the map in 2018. One of the things that's rather remarkably included in, it looks like both versions of the budget that the Republicans have put forth is another round of tax cuts, significant tax cuts that will mostly slant towards 
folks at the top. You know, if we get to it, if they do send a budget to the governor, it puts him in a difficult spot. Are there certain things that would make it worth signing? Is he going to veto what's ultimately sent to him if it's sent with a whole raft of new uh, top 1% tax cuts? How does he weigh that out? I think that on the taxes, everyone is kind of used to tax cuts benefiting the rich. The most uh, working people don't like it, but they just kind of expect it, unfortunately, from bad politicians. What I find actually surprises people is that the corporate tax cuts, which are huge in the Republicans' proposal, mostly go to out-of-state corporations. Mm -hmm. And that really blows people's minds. They're like, wait a minute, why would we give our money back to companies that aren't even based here? And that, to me, seems a place that's an easy line to draw in the sand for the governor and for, for legislative Democrats, for my colleagues. Because we can at least agree, no matter if you want to raise taxes, lower taxes, that the, what you do with taxes should benefit people and companies in North Carolina, not companies based elsewhere. Years ago, I spent time as a lobbyist in the state of Illinois. And at the end of the session, usually what would happen, they had a Republican governor and a Democratic legislature. The four leaders of the General Assembly, the minority and majority leaders and the governor would all get together in a big room. The cameras would sit outside and wait for them to sort of decide or announce what kind of a agreement they'd reached, but they'd reach an agreement. They would actually sit down and negotiate something out. It always struck me as sort of a common sense way when you had leaders of different parties. Is there any indication anything like that would happen in North Carolina anytime soon? I think that that is the hope of how we resolve this budget stalemate is with a meeting like that. And what I hope is that we have a better form of bipartisanship than what you're seeing in D.C. right now, where, you know, bipartisanship is kind of the lowest common denominator. Okay, well, we got this infrastructure deal with the simple things that everybody could agree to. What you're talking about in old-fashioned bipartisanship is, well, I might not agree with you on that, but I understand it's your priority, so I'll give you your priority as long as you'll give me my priority. And we have a strong enough fiscal state right now that we could do that. Everybody could get what they want. We could fully fund our public education system and do the majority of the Republican tax cuts, given how good of a financial status we're in right now. It's remarkable. Obviously, there's so many other issues to talk about. The dominant issue of 2021, I suppose, really remains the pandemic. And I know you've spoken out on that. Any sort of overall assessment of what we're getting right and what we're getting wrong when it comes to dealing with this enormous public health crisis? I mean, obviously, the challenge right now is how to increase the number and percentage of people that are vaccinated. I think that we really do have to have public leverage on people to get them vaccinated. Uh, so, for instance, in my home county of Orange, UNC has announced that we will restart full football game attendance with no mask mandate, no vaccine mandate, no testing mandate. I think that that is a missed opportunity for public leadership on getting people to vaccinate. Most of the SEC schools that have 100,000 person stadiums are going to have a mandate that you either are vaccinated or you can show a negative test from the previous 72 hours before you can go to a football game. And that is going to get people to go out and get vaccinated. And we should have that type of public leadership here in North Carolina. We should have companies that are making it clear that you can't attend their public events or come into their building unless you're not vaccinated. And we should have an expectation that everyone is vaccinated to be in our public schools if they're eligible to be vaccinated. Yeah, I've been watching the U.S. Open tennis tournament on television this week, and they're having huge crowds and they everybody has to show their vaccination before they get in. It doesn't seem to be a big problem, but uh, 
it is remarkable that we don't seem willing to go down that direction. Our Joe Killian did a, a story this week on the sort of status of universities and reopening. And there was a quote I was struck by from a professor, Professor Barrett at Appalachian State. He said, the administration's goal, he was talking of App State, but I think it may apply to a lot of schools. The administration's goal is clearly to, you know, to declare everything's going well. The hope is that even if lots of people do get sick, that no one gets really sick or dies and that they can then just kind of, you know, run through this kind of chaos and sort of come out okay. That's a pretty depressing take, but it seems like it might be pretty accurate as to what the approach that the leadership that runs the UNC system, appointed by the Republicans of the General Assembly, are taking towards reopening universities. Yeah, I mean, we are all going to have to learn how to live with some level of COVID-19 transmission, but that doesn't mean that we should allow unnecessary transmission when there's easy things that can be done to prevent it that still allow us to have kids go to school, have people go to work, have us enjoy public events, get back to going to concerts, restaurants, et cetera. All those things are possible, but you can't stop the implementation of vaccine requirements, mask mandates, et cetera, where they make sense. I want to talk more broadly uh, before we take a break here about the question of higher education more generally. I know, again, that's an issue that you pay very close attention to, hailing from Orange County and the UNC system. There seems to be a disconnect there as well when it comes to funding higher education. We continue to see professors leaving the UNC system. There was a powerful series of reports from the group Higher Ed Works recently where they talked about the nursing shortage in North Carolina and the fact that we can't actually attract enough students. We can't keep teachers to teach nursing because we don't pay them enough. Do you see that as a continuing need in our state that we need to better fund higher education to maintain North Carolina's leadership position in that realm? We've seen that over the last decade, that the the amount of funding for our UNC system continues to fall behind what's necessary, and uh, the system continues to rely more and more on, on external sources of funding, such as grants or donations, et cetera. And I think that it is an intentional move by Republican legislative leaders and the board members that they appoint, that they really are trying to slow down the university system. I can't make the case for them on why they would want to do that. But at this point, you know, when they've had 10 years of control now, the implications of it are pretty clear. Yeah. When you read some of the literature that comes out from some of the conservative groups in Raleigh, there's a group called the, I think it's the Martin Center for Higher Education that has a lot of connections to the Republican leadership. They're pretty explicit about their point of view that fewer people should go to college. They take the point of view that more people should go to trade schools and that we just shouldn't be enrolling as many people in higher education it would be a remarkable shift of attitudes in our state, but it seems to be pretty much what they're pursuing at this point. And the consequences, as you pointed out, are concrete. You have fewer people with college degrees. You have fewer people who are eligible to be teachers or nurses or doctors, fewer people who are eligible to be engineers. It does take people who have college degrees to make our society work. The community college system has been relatively better funded. They still have their own needs, but I think that also illustrates what you're describing, that their philosophy is, let's go ahead and keep people in those service industries and the trades, but not invest in moving people into a knowledge economy. Coming up next, part two of my special extended conversation with State Representative Greg Meyer. Stay with us. Read and hear more about important news and policy issues at ncpolicywatch.com. This is News and Views. Welcome back to News and Views. I'm Rob Schofield. 
In part one of my special extended conversation with State Representative Greg Meyer of Orange County, we discussed a number of frustrating developments at the General Assembly, including the stalemate between House and Senate leaders over a new state budget, the regressive nature of proposed GOP tax cuts, and the need for more aggressive action in getting North Carolinians vaccinated against COVID-19. In part two of our chat, we explored a variety of additional subjects, including the enormous ongoing needs in K-12 education, the debate over whether the courts can order lawmakers to fulfill their constitutional duty to fund public schools, Republican plans to once again bring a partisan lens to legislative and congressional redistricting, and the prospects for marijuana legalization. We're talking with State Representative Greg Meyer. We've alluded to education and K-12 through education. You you referenced it briefly, the issue of the Leandro decision. We have this 25-year-old court decision, and we've had recent rulings from a state judge saying, you've got to comply with this. If we're going to provide a sound basic education as our Constitution requires, the General Assembly is going to have to make some investments. There's a very concrete plan that some experts, team of experts came up with. Doesn't look, however, like the General Assembly, at least the Republican leadership of the General Assembly, is going to abide by that at this point. Is that your take on where things stand? Well, they've been pretty explicit in saying that they don't believe that the courts can hold the General Assembly accountable for setting the state budget. And so you've got a kind of a crisis looming there of the separation of powers and what branch is, you know, to what extent the the legislative branch is accountable to the judicial. But the bottom line is that they are nowhere close to funding what the courts and the court appointed experts have said would be necessary to meet our constitutional obligation for a sound basic education. And folks in the triangle where I am and, and where you are, are used to having pretty well-funded schools because they rely a lot on the local tax base. But when you get out into rural North Carolina, I don't think you can find very many teachers or very many parents who would argue that their schools are adequately funded. And that's because they don't have the local tax base to supplement the very low rates of education spending that we have from the state level. And that, of course, you know, leads to this greater urban-rural divide that we've been also trying to figure out how to stop in North Carolina And our current education spending probably exacerbates the rural-urban divide more than any other piece of policy. Yeah, I know I'm personally familiar with family members and other stories and folks I know who maybe start their career in a rural district because they can get a job there. But as soon as they get a few years under their belt, they're quickly looking to move to an urban district, the higher pay, better funded, you know, better circumstances, better facilities. It's sort of a vicious cycle, unfortunately, and it's hard for those rural districts to retain teachers. They were the ones, of course, who initially brought the lawsuit in the Leandro case. It does raise an issue at some point. Obviously, the General Assembly can strike down a law as unconstitutional. It really does raise a fundamental question of separation of powers. Can the General Assembly be told to do something by the courts? And we'll just have to see uh, whether the judge goes down that road, I suppose. And, you know, if the judge does go down that road and say to the General Assembly, this is what I'm ordering you to do, and the General Assembly says no, then we really do end up in in some unprecedented waters for North Carolina. There are other states that have gotten in that exact same situation on education funding, And it's had some pretty disastrous consequences for schools that get stuck in the middle. Gosh, we hope that doesn't happen here. Another elephant in the room, there are so many of them these days that as the General Assembly lists along into the fall, legislative and congressional redistricting. Years ago, when the Republicans were in the minority, they proposed the idea of an independent redistricting commission. But uh, now that they're solidly ensconced in the majority, they've sort of lost interest in that. We have a process that's proceeding. It looks maybe to be a little more transparent in some respects than previous processes. But I know there are a lot of skeptics who feel like we're headed for another gerrymander, basically, of legislative and congressional districts from the Republican majority. What's your take on redistricting? 
Well, I mean, nothing significant has changed since the last redistricting we did based on the court order in 2019. And so I would expect that the process this year will probably look a lot like that. I know that advocates are calling for more public hearings and and better chance for the public to have their say-so on whatever maps are proposed. But ultimately, redistricting always comes down to who has the majority and and how the majority decides to wield the pen. And no matter what the public says, uh, the Republicans have the votes. And I don't we have uh, multiple rounds of redistricting from the last 10 years that show us that the Republicans will do whatever they can to maintain a legislative majority as large as possible and to maintain a majority in our congressional delegations. I don't expect any of that to change. I'm sure it will all go back to court and this time probably to be litigated mostly in the state courts because of the rulings that came out of the U.S. Supreme Court uh, that largely kicked this down to the states to deal with. So we probably got several more years of conversations to have about redistricting. Yet another issue that sadly has kind of gotten buried this session. We've, we've talked about it for years is Medicaid expansion. This past week, I noted, was Opioid Awareness Week. And some advocates pointed out that we still have a huge problem with opioids and drug abuse and drug overdoses in our state. And one of the contributing factors to that is that there are so many people who can't get into treatment because they don't have health care, they don't have health insurance, and how Medicaid expansion might well make a difference there and save a lot of lives. Is there any chance that that argument might end up being persuasive to the Republican majority that continues to block Medicaid expansion? I mean, we haven't seen it be persuasive. I do think there has been some movement on Medicaid expansion among Republicans over the last year. I think it comes from a lot of places at that argument about the opioid crisis probably has some leverage with some people. I think just the overall cost of healthcare spending has a, some leverage. And now that it's becoming clear that the cost of COVID is going to be pushed onto ratepayers somehow, I think there's more and more economic pressure to say, hey, look, if the federal government is willing to give us the money to pay for some of the poorest people and some of the hardest working people in North Carolina to have access to health care, and then we don't have to pay it out of our health care premiums for those of us that do have health insurance. Uh, I think that there's just some simple back pocket math that's going on that's leading some Republicans to change their tune on Medicaid expansion. Do you think if we ever got a vote, just a straight vote on the House and Senate floors, that there's a chance that enough Republicans would join with Democrats to actually pass Medicaid expansion? Is it just a leadership blocking it or do you think it's still you know, a sizable, significant majority of Republicans just think it's a bad idea? It would be very close, but it could potentially pass the House. I don't know about the Senate. I think, though, that this is where gerrymandering really kicks in, is that if you had actually competitive districts, then a lot of people would vote for it because you couldn't vote against expanding Medicaid in a competitive district. But because we have so many folks that are gerrymandered into super safe districts, they're incentivized to stick with their flank. And this is true for Democrats and Republicans. When you have a district that is way leaning one way or the other, then you tend to lean that way as well. And on this issue, I think being in the middle is what would get more votes for Medicaid. And, you know, if we had better, more representative districts, we'd have a lot more compromise on a lot of issues. 
coming near the end of our time with uh, Representative Greg Meyer of Orange and Caswell Counties. Another sort of huge overarching crisis that faces us, of course, is the global environmental crisis, the, the climate emergency. I know you've introduced legislation to deal with this pernicious problem of water pollution and air pollution caused by PFAS, these chemicals that we now uh, see sort of all over. I wonder if you have any take on whether there's any hope for progress on, on the environmental front at the General Assembly before you all call it a year. I've been really disappointed that Republicans haven't taken on the clean drinking water issue because it's not partisan at all. Everybody wants clean drinking water. It polls incredibly highly. And we've had major challenges with clean drinking water that have created a lot of bad press in North Carolina, yet they won't take on the coming challenges with any proactive nature. So we've introduced the North Carolina Clean Water Drinking Act. I think that was the new name of it. We changed the name of it this year. We introduced it two sessions in a row. It's gone sure. nowhere. And then, you know, an overall approach to climate, the Republicans basically have no plan at all. Whereas what we're seeing evolve from Governor Cooper and from President Biden is that Democrats are recognizing that you can make good climate investments across all of your budget. For instance, we introduced another bill this year uh, that was called Green School Save Money, that would have taken some of our dollars that we have in the bank from not having an active budget the last couple of years, put that money to work on putting solar on rooftops at schools and making those schools more energy efficient so they can depend on the solar electricity for heating and cooling rather than having to import extra energy for it. And then getting electric school buses, which could be plugged into that solar energy at the schools during the day as well thereby decreasing the amount of money that the schools would have to spend on gasoline, heating, cooling, et cetera. And they could sit, take that money that they save and put it into educating kids. So many no-brainers out there. I guess the final one I'll ask you about in the few seconds we have left, medical marijuana. Is that really going to happen in the 2021 session? It looks proceeding, but maybe in a very narrow way. Is that something that's inevitably going to take place in North Carolina? I mean, it looks like it's going to make it out of the Senate. I have not heard any indication of how we would take it up in the House. And it may be that we have we wait until short session to take it up and have it start a whole other process in the House. Um, as you've seen, it's a fairly narrowly tailored medical marijuana bill. I think that there is plenty of room for work to be done on the provisions of who gets to use it and how and when, but even more work to be done on how do we tax it? What do we do with the revenue, et cetera? And again, I introduced comprehensive cannabis legalization legislation that would fully legalize recreational use along with medical and get us out of incarcerating people for small possession and try and actually expunge the records of people who have a criminal record for something that would no longer be illegal. And so there's so many more pieces to the marijuana puzzle that we can and should be taking on. And I think when that bill does come to the House, I'd be happy to support even a small level of medical legalization. But we will also argue that it is, again, a no brainer that North Carolina should do so much more on cannabis. It seems to be the trend across the country. I know Virginia's moved in that direction. Well, lots of other questions. I guess we'll have to save them for next time. We sure appreciate you taking the time to be with us. We hope you hang in there in these final, what we hope are the final weeks of the 2021 session. And thanks for your service. All right, Rob. Thanks for having me. Good to talk to everybody. Coming up next, we'll hear from one of North Carolina's top experts about how we can teach our children about America's racial past while doing a better job of combating racism in the present. Don't go away. <laughs> 